you're listening to the CC Solicitors Podcast with Colleen Cleary, Claire Dawson and Regan O'Driscoll. Hi, welcome to CC Solicitors Podcast and I have with me today Claire Dawson, partner in CC Solicitors and Regan O'Driscoll. And we're going to talk about the very topical subject of remote working. When we think about it, really, COVID has really been the great disruptor. And while remote working has always been on the horizon, it's typically fell within the sort of gender equality sphere. And it's very rapidly moved into the business sphere now. And what we're going to consider in the context of this podcast is whether remote working provides great freedom for people or is it resulting in an unregulated work environment that we've all been kind of forced into as a result of COVID-19. So just to sort of kick off, we're just going to have a little chat amongst ourselves, myself and Regan and Claire, about what the positives are, but potentially what the negatives are to remote working. And then we're going to go on and have a little chat about the new regime that's coming out and the government's response and the trade union's response as well to remote working. So Regan, just want to pick your brain a bit about what do you think are the kind of benefits, positive aspects to remote work? And it's a bit of a, a conundrum, really. There's some aspects that are fantastic and other aspects that perhaps aren't. What do you think? What, what would you consider to be the positive aspects? Probably the same as many people. It's the, the flexibility of it. You know, in circumstances where if you have a child in a crash or what have you, and, the, and it is open, depending on, the, on, on what level of restriction we're in, that you, you have the flexibility just popping out, dropping them off, coming back. And they're not being a, a particular route that you need to follow by a particular time during the day. Um, so there is a flexibility to it that I think people value and that will will continue to value and will we'll hope to keep going after things go back to normal, whatever normality will be in, in six months time or whenever it is. Um, I mean, the other huge benefit, which has many articles have been written about, is the benefit to the environment, something which is really not to be underestimated given the, the, the climate crisis facing us. Um, and that arises where, you know, you haven't got thousands of cars stuck in a gridlock for an hour every day and the emissions that flow from that. Uh, lots more people have taken up cycling since the beginning of this whole pandemic and huge amount of uh, investment is going to go into cycling infrastructure now. Whether as a result of this, uh, this pandemic or not, I, I don't know, but it can only be to the good from the perspective of the environment. And then, you know... As well as that, you've got the relief of, of there, there won't be as much, you know, public transport being used as well for the same reason. So it's, it's all of those emissions. And then coupled with that, you've got accommodation as, a, as something that's being relieved, the, the pressure on accommodation in the inner city. Um, if people are able to live outside the city without having huge commute costs and the, and the, the emissions and all of that kind of thing, then they'll be able to uh, live in cheaper, nicer houses uh, or whatever it is outside of the city. And so it's kind of relieving the pressure in all of these areas. So there's no big commute. Um, you're able to have a better work-life balance. It gives families more time together if they don't have to take an hour or two hours out of their day to to travel to and from work. Um, and then from, I mean, that that's the employee's perspective, largely from employer's perspective, maybe you have a broader school, a pool of talent because you can look further afield and you don't need to worry about somebody needing to relocate to where you are. And then the other thing is, is that as an employer, you might be better able to uh, accommodate disabled workers or people who are in Ill, Ill health who can't be in the office for whatever reason. So there's greater access to employment for those types of employees, which means you have a bigger pool there as well. People who are absolutely able to, to do that job, but uh, you haven't been able to accommodate them before. So there are, there are a lot of benefits. 
how they continue um, or how I suppose employers latch onto them and how employees will cling to them remains to be seen. But there are a lot of benefits there to at least having partial remote working. Yes, I'd agree with that. And, and I suppose really the reality is it's a particular type of job that can be done remotely. Uh, it's kind of typically white collar jobs, um, possibly jobs like teaching, not so effective healthcare workers jobs obviously do need kind of interfacing. But, you know, certainly there is a great proportion of business and employers that could potentially work remotely. But, you know, like I said, some people take the view that, you know, it's, it's freedom in some way, but at the same time, there's going to be this whole unregulated environment potentially also as well. And there could be some negatives as well, Claire, don't you think? But perhaps you could kind of highlight. But yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think the thing about what, what happened because of the pandemic is that it happened really quickly. You know, literally people were in the office one day and then perhaps with a day or two's notice, everybody was suddenly working from home. Uh, as you say, this kind of white collar workers that you're talking about, obviously. And so immediately people had to work out where to work within their own home. Not everybody has a suitable work environment in their own home. And particularly in circumstances now where we've had children doing homeschooling and a lack of childcare and a lack of schooling happening. Parents have been trying to work in the same environment that their children are trying to homeschool in. Uh, it, I think it has been really challenging for some people because of that. So you have perhaps one parent in a bedroom at a tiny desk on conference calls all day long, and then you have their children trying to get online at the same time. The Wi-Fi gets uh, overburdened. Uh, it, it's pretty been pretty difficult from that point of view, I think, because of the way it happened and because we, I guess we hadn't planned for it. Um, and I suppose the thing about having a remote working strategy moving forward is that some of those things that weren't in place would be put in place. So from an employment law point of view, you're looking at things like health and safety, uh, mental people's mental and physical health, the physical health basics like having a proper desk, chair, ergonomic stuff, uh, safety points checked. And then mental health wise, I think one of the things that's been really focused on is that the impact of that lack of social connection that you'd get from being in the office. And even the kind of connection you have with people who frankly, you don't know that well and perhaps they're not that important to you in your life or don't appear to be that important, but just the the, the day-to-day interactions you might have in the lift or on your way into the office or or the kind of what they call the water cooler moments. So there's there's definitely a recognition that those things have had a, an, a negative impact in some ways on, on employees. I think one of the other things is that there's definitely been a gendered impact of the whole uh, COVID crisis, as I think you've mentioned already. And women have tended to have to take on more of the homeschooling and the childcare responsibilities. And I think that's definitely had a negative impact. They are juggling working at home with looking after the children and, and taking the main responsibility for the homeschooling. I know of quite a few examples of women who have essentially felt they've now been forced to give up work either temporarily or or permanently. And the, the pandemic unemployment payment actually provides for that. If you've left work because of lack of childcare and schooling, you can actually go on to the COVID pandemic unemployment payment. So it's kind of an indication of what's been happening to, to some people because of the situation that they're in. The other thing I'd say, just, and this is kind of from an employer and an employee perspective, I would have a concern about younger, more junior employees who are coming up through the ranks 
And how did they build relationships in an organization? How do they get that sense of camaraderie with colleagues? And also, how, how are people trained effectively? You know, particularly in the kind of work that we do, professional services, just as an example, where the usual setup would be that a junior person would sit in an office with a more senior person. They're listening in on your phone calls. You're listening in on their phone calls. And there's a lot of exchange of information in that kind of what they call that kind of osmosis. And I think a lot of that is lost if if people, you know, when people are working from home uh, all the time. So the, the, the other things that have been discussed, I think, from an employer's point of view, and particularly is, is the potential to decrease creativity and innovation when people aren't able to work in teams and actually come together physically to discuss problems, issues and also new projects. And there's also a kind of bigger picture point, I suppose, about workers who have who are looking to relocate abroad. And of course, this would have an impact on employment levels in a country and and revenue collected potentially and all that kind of thing. So there's a kind of a bigger picture. But of course, there are loads of positives, which Regan has highlighted. And and one of them, I think, from an employer's perspective is a reduced need for office space in very high cost places, you know, city centres where there is, you know, the rents have been traditionally very, very high for office space. So people can grow a business while keeping their their office space the same, or they can potentially reduce their office space and, and keep the same number of employees. Yeah, I think that's right, Claire. I think those all those comments you've highlighted are really important. And it's something that we're going to have to learn to live with and develop. I think employers are going to have to be aware of all those potential implications, which have, could be potentially quite negative from um, the impact on on women, the impact on younger employees as well, and also the continued need to business develop. And how do you business develop in a remote world? There's only so much that you can achieve. Uh, And while you can service existing clients, how do you get new clients? How do you create that interaction? So there are all things I think that kind of feed into the later part of the conversation where we're going to have a chat about a remote working policy, which may just kind of address some of those issues, those positives and negatives that we've just highlighted. Now, interestingly, the government's quite on the ball um, on this particular issue and have recently, uh, a lot of people have got a lot of of attention, issued the National Remote Work Strategy. The response of the trade unions has been quite welcoming. They've said that any of those, it's quite important in the context of remote working that any hard-won workers' rights must be protected. And that's in the context of remote working. They've been quite embracing of remote working in circumstances where I understand a number of their members are also very interested and welcoming to the remote working arrangements that have evolved as a result of the pandemic. So the government strategy, what is it? It's quite an extensive document. It's certainly worth a look at. And it has basically a three-prong approach. It talks about creating a conducive environment for working remotely, an infrastructure, and then a remote work policy and guidance. So we talk about creating a conducive environment and infrastructure what we need really in those circumstances is, like I'd say, perhaps a proper national broadband, proper social policy. Um, and a lot of commentary around it, the kind of like what well, the law is at the moment, that the law isn't quite right or quite fit for purpose at this point in time, um, which has led a number of initiatives, which Regan and Claire are going to talk about in, in a moment, to try and address that gap. And at the moment, there's consultation going on about the right to work remotely. And that's probably the, the piece in the strategy that got the most attention when it was published just a few weeks back. Um, and I think it's kind of, it's a bit, we don't at the moment have a right to work remotely. And this has been kind of documented as a potential right that employees will be able to ask their employers to consider. 
And Regan, you've got some insights. I think there was a kind of, I think that was kind of compounded by a recent WRC case as well, Regan, wasn't it? You might want want to just comment on that and then the provisions in the remote work strategy in relation to right to work remotely. Yeah, it was a very interesting case, actually, um, and has generated a lot of talk in in the employment law world. Um, It's the first case to come out really saying, uh, you know, effectively telling employers you have to take any request to work remotely seriously, particularly when employees are raising health and safety concerns arising from COVID-19. Having read the case, it really was extraordinary how the the employer chose to defend themselves in the case uh, from reading the, the transcript of it, certainly, by basically saying, well, when the employee asked if, I mean, in, in this case, sorry, just to give a bit of background, you have three um, operations coordinators or what they're called, and they're, they're employed by an entity that um, provides services to a university. So effectively what these employees were having to do was to deal with all the, the student, student accommodation and coordinate uh, accommodation and whatever it was um, for, for students in that university. And in March 2020, obviously, most of the students leave, but there's still some left and some of them are having to self-isolate and that kind of thing. So the, the three coordinators all effectively did the same job and were kind of seen as one entity. They, were, they worked in one office um, with one other person who was an employee of the university who was immediately sent home to, to work remotely. Uh, the university provided these three workers who were not their own employees again uh, with laptops, which you would think automatically suggests that the university assumed they would be working remotely and was facilitating them in doing that. Um, The employees had huge uh, health and safety concerns. Um, They didn't like the fact that they were going to be all in one office together. They asked if they could uh, work remotely, even in a way, and a a very sensible suggestion, the adjudicator said the same thing, where they would sort of rotate. They didn't all need to be on the premises at the same time. Um, So one of them could be there and the other two could be at home and they'd kind of all spend, say, two days in the office or whatever it was at any one time. And uh, the the employer just said no. And when asked about it in the hearing, they said they they were asked whether they had asked their client being the university if that would be possible. And they said, oh, no, no, we knew the university would say no. So they didn't even actually take any steps to investigate whether it would work or whether their client would be okay with it. They just said no, 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 all the way along. Um, And that was what was criticised by the adjudicator. And that's really where they fell down um, is because when when the request was made, they could have turned it down. But in order to do that in a way that they'd be able to defend at a hearing, they should have actually thought about it and gone through the steps that you would expect any sensible employer to go through, regardless of any legislation being in place. Just can I actually facilitate this? I have obligations under the the Safety, Health and Welfare Work Act 2005. Is there something I need to do under that, that, you know, that this this request is, is hitting on? And yes, there was, because you have an obligation to ensure a safe place to work for your employees. And what the adjudicator pointed out is that the, the obligation is first and foremost a duty to eliminate risk. It's not just a duty to mitigate risk. Because the employer was saying, well, you know, we gave them hand sanitizer or whatever, and we thought about putting up barriers and things like that. The, what you're supposed to first look at is whether you can eliminate the risk. And eliminating the risk here meant allowing them to work remotely. And it seemed from the adjudicator's perspective that they were able to do that. And that if they had asked, if the employer had asked the university, it would have been facilitated or could well have been facilitated. If they'd actually taken those steps and investigated whether it was possible and the, the university had come back to say, no, it's not possible for X, Y and Z reasons, and those had been valid reasons, then yes, they could have said, well, OK, we can't eliminate. Well, then what's the next step? We mitigate the risk. But they just didn't take that crucial first step. 
so it, it really is, it's, it's quite uh, instructive to employers. I think many employers would not have made the same mistake. I mean, the other thing at the hearing was that the employer went on the offensive and just basically said that this employee was nothing but a complainer. Uh, and you're never really going to get very far with that kind of argument in, in the Workplace Relations Commission. Um, but leaving that aside, I think it's very instructive in terms of how it's likely to be with the, the right to request remote working in the future. That the moment any employee can ask to work remotely and an employer should look at it and really consider it properly. But there's no legislative framework. But I would say the legislative framework is likely to reflect what I've just talked about there, which will give all, all employees the right to request it and then sort of lay down the ground rules for how employers are supposed to respond to and handle those kind of requests. So we don't have those further details yet, but I mean, common sense would dictate that that's what it's going to include. And then, I mean, the next thing is, uh, will employers... I'm sorry. Do, yeah, go on, sorry, yeah. Sorry, yeah, Rika, that case is really interesting. And I think in that particular case, she resigned, didn't she? Because they, oh, she, they refused. It, she, yes. It was, yeah, a constructive, yeah. it was a, just to mention that she was, it was a constructive dismissal case. She resigned mm-hmm. because she wasn't accommodated. Um, Correct. And, and, yeah. and the adjudicator's view was that, you know, the requirement to attend the workplace without a risk assessment was in itself... A repudiation of a contract because I Absolutely. think yeah. it's very difficult to prove a constructive dismissal case as you and I know that you have to like because the burden's normally on the employer to prove the reason but she you know she had to prove that it was reasonable yes, for her to yeah. resign that so it's a very high bar it is and it's something a lot of employees don't realize and they kind of say oh, I'm going to claim constructive dismissal but you actually have to prove that the employer has beha- behaved so badly that your resignation wasn't of your own choice at all, that you effectively had no choice, that your contract was repudiated and your employer your employer resigned like resigned for you. You know, they, they terminated you in all but action. They forced you to where you had to take the action to terminate your employment. And and the, the adjudicator here said that's what they did. I mean, there were sort of added things around that where the employer was threatening uh, the employee with disciplinary action f- for something stupid. But, it, you know, so that you, you look at every case on its own merits and practitioners will know that the next case that comes before the WRC doesn't have to follow this one. You know, they're not bound by their previous decisions. But uh, there were there were aspects of this, this decision that I think that will, it's not they're not binding, but certainly any other adjudicator will probably be mindful to, minded to follow it. And I'd be surprised if it was overturned by the Labour Court because it's very sensible and it very clearly shows, look, this is what the employer did not do. And this is what, the, and in not doing that, the employer was incredibly unreasonable and reckless as to their, their employee's safety. Um, and it, it's something that I think, you know, it's, it's not actually hard. Employers just have to stop and think what this employer did was they made a decision they were not going to do it. And that was it. And they did not think beyond it. Um, and and you do see that, you know, you, you see it sometimes where people say, well, we're not going to do it because we don't want to do it. And unfortunately, that's not good enough. Not certainly when it comes to health and safety. Yeah. I mean, I think it just it goes on then to the the question there as to whether employees can request for remote working. And I think the bottom line is that the employer will be obliged to make a reasonable and objective assessment in, in hmm. response to that request. Yeah, they don't have to say yes. They just have to think about it properly and give a proper objective response to it and think about really operationally, can they do it or can they not? If operationally it can't be facilitated, um, then I, I would say that's probably going to be fine. But you need to be able to back that up and have a proper assessment. I think the difference now from 12 months ago is that it's going to be much harder for employers who are just kind of box ticking on it to go, mm. oh, there's a business reason you can't work from home. Yeah, if, I agree. If with you. you have yeah. in fact been working from home for the last ten months 
perfectly effectively or the last 11 months perfectly effectively. And your productivity has been fine and unaffected or even in some cases it's gone up. I I mean, I think there was a sort of a mindset prior to COVID-19 across the board, across the board, even in the the WRC, I think, you know, that it just wasn't possible really to effectively work from home. And there there probably still is an element of that um, in, you know, some employers will still have a distrust of their employees actually doing any work. But it's very hard to stand over that now because we're, where they can show that the employees have, the employees can say, well, look at all my figures or look at what I've achieved in the last 12 months. Um, it's just going to be, it, it's going to, ch- it's a game changer, really. Yeah, I think so. And But I think really at the end of the day as well, from an employee's perspective, if they have an objective reason and they require the employee to come in, then they're going to be able to stand over that too. So, you know, yeah. you know, but, and I think it's kind of slightly been misreported in the, in the press that everybody has a right to work. It's not a right to work from home, it's a right to request. And 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 I think ultimately the employer still has to make a business decision as to what's best for their business. And from, if from a business perspective, and they've got proper reasons for that, and they rationalize those out to the employees, then that will be sufficient in itself too. But, you know, it's just about thinking it through. And it's really, I mean, like we say with everything in employment law, Regan, it's just like, don't do it, don't have a blanket ban. Once you have a blanket ban, yes. pretty, pretty much like that case was before, then without justification, then you're going to walk yourself into something. Yeah, I mean, like I said, this employer got themselves into trouble by, I think, attacking the claimant in the in the hearing because, I mean, if I was the adjudicator, I would have suspected that maybe they said no because they didn't like her, you know, and that's <laughs> that's not good enough. Uh, you know, it, they, it, the adjudicator didn't say that, but it, it, it the implication is there that there was really, really, they just didn't want to facilitate her, so they didn't even think about it or think about why or really objectively assess it. This is another thing that's come up, I think, throughout the pandemic is is kind of consistency in terms of employers looking at employees and who's been allowed to work from home, who's had their hours cut, who's been kept on their full hours. And again, sometimes employers not being actually able to provide a justification for why they've taken decisions in relation to different members of staff. And of course, that creates huge employee relations problems then, because people don't feel that they're being treated equitably. Yeah. And I think that all feeds into what we're we're working with a number of clients at the moment, putting together remote working policies. It's about being consistent. It's about being transparent. It's about having a policy. It's about articulating that and having that so that everybody knows what to do when that request is made and having parameters for that. And we're going to talk a little bit later on about that. So the other things are just to be aware of as well that could help you, um, like I said, we're working with other clients to, to do those kind of, uh, make those policies for them. But there are some really good documents uh, online too. There's a government guidelines, which was recently published as well with a checklist for employers. And that goes through all the kind of different things that you need to raise from compliance, with working time, health and safety, the equality issues that we talked about before. And again, you know, there's a good recommendation there that, you know, when you start operating these remote working policies, that you're minded to look at your policies through a gender lens or through an equality lens, making sure that it's not all the women that are at home, making sure it's not all the young people that are home, that you have, and in circumstances that you have a good mix and circumstances where there are disproportionately, say, women working at home, that you have proper ways of continuing career development, continuing full participation in the organisation too. And that's really important to think. Otherwise, that's going to store up quite a few problems for the future, I would imagine. And the checklist also talks about data protection, cybersecurity, and and again, like I said, you know, very helpful to, for initial start to look at and then to work on what you want from your remote working strategy. And there's also the, just to finish that off with what's out there, the health and safety guidelines. That's very focused on health and safety. And as we all know from health and safety, there's a legal obligation to provide a safe place to work that extends obviously then into when people have remote working. 
And that has a really good, very specific setup checklist about the ergonomics of the workspace that you are, you know, you would be obliged as, a, as an employer to ensure that you're compliant with. And it has some kind of good points as well around the impact of stress on homeworking and some of the points that Claire mentioned as well around the sense of isolation and, and how you address that because, you know, there are complexities around remote working too. Uh, I think particularly, as Claire said, for young people and, you know, how do young people develop and, you know, progress their careers uh, you know, from their laptops in their bedrooms, probably in an inappropriate workspace. That's another thing to mention as well, that young people are often in shared accommodation, having to work from their bedrooms, you know, potentially with confidential information. And that kind of all feeds into making sure you've got proper cybersecurity data protection policies as well. One other interesting aspect is that, you know, like I said at the beginning, some people feel that it's quite unregulated work from home and some people say productivity is up although it's questionable around that too, uh, and that people are working harder than ever. And there's this whole concept of the, which is kind of in tandem with the right to work remotely is the right to disconnect. And Claire, we were talking about that earlier and about the fact that, you know, I think France are a bit of a forerunner in that, but you might just give us some insight as to what's happening, what's happened in other countries and what's happening here about yeah. the right to disconnect. This is fascinating, this whole area, because obviously we've had this seismic shift in, in office life that's really blurred the work-life boundary now beyond recognition. And digital technologies and smartphones had already meant that the right to disconnect was becoming an issue in the workplace. But I think the fact that people have literally been at home 24-7 with their, their work devices right beside them, this has made um, the issue of culture uh, around working hours even more important. And the strategy on remote working has, has highlighted how employees have found switching off from work increasingly difficult whilst they've continued to work remotely during the pandemic. And it's asked the Workplace Relations Commission to prepare a code of practice on the right to disconnect, which is going to be subject to the approval of the Minister for Trade and Enterprise in the first quarter of this year. And it's a really important development, I think, because the advancements in technology means that employees are, are, are constantly accessible now. And that can obviously create a huge amount of pressure to be on call all the time. And the right to disconnect is defined under the strategy as a worker's right to be able to disengage with work and refrain from engaging in work-related electronic communications, such as emails or messages, uh, during non-work hours and holidays. Now, the idea is that the code would be guidance and not binding legislation, but that it would be admissible in evidence in claims in, in the Workplace Relations Commission. Now, just to kind of put this all in context, um, a Harvard study that has analysed the emails and meetings of 3.1 million people in 16 global cities had found that remote staff were working 48.5 minutes more per day than they were in the office. Um, so it kind of flies in the face of the idea that people are actually shirking from home rather than working yeah. from home. Yeah. And, um, and it seems to be that remote staff are twice as likely as office-based workers to be exceeding the European Union, the sort of 48-hour working week. Um, and there's, there's also the introduction and use now, of course, of tracking software by employers on their workers' devices. Um, mm. And this is something that's come to the forefront since more people have been working from home, that, em that employers are tracking 
when people are online, uh, how many keystrokes they're making on their laptop or their, their, their desktop. And it, it puts a lot of pressure on employees feeling like they're being kind of watched or surveilled uh, when, the, when they're at home. And of course, that creates a, a kind of stress as well. Now, there's absolutely no formal right to disconnect at the moment under Irish or European law. There is, of course, the maximum working hours of 48 hours per week under the Organisation of Working Time Act. And that still applies and it obliges employers to curtail working patterns if they are in breach of, of those maximum hours and to make sure that workers also take uh, rest periods that are mandated in the Organisation from Working Time Act. But of course, for a lot of office workers and executives and people in professional services, there isn't necessarily a huge amount of awareness of those maximum working hours. And people do tend to kind of work to get the job done. So it, it's been recognised now that there really is a move towards uh, introducing a right to disconnect. And the Irish Congress of Trade Unions has, has really welcomed this approach. They've said that what it will require is for, rather than having a kind of one-size-fits-all protocol, employers and their workforce should really work together, consult together about what's going to be appropriate for that workplace. I mean, if you work for a company where people are in lots of different time zones, people are going to be sending emails at all hours of the day and night for, for somebody else in the organisation. So, so a rule that says, well, you can't send an email to somebody when they're not working might not be appropriate in that context. But in a context where everyone's working in the t same time zone, maybe you cut off the servers after seven o'clock at night, uh, which is what has happened in some companies in France who've, who've had this right to disconnect for some time. So, so that's interesting. But, but essentially, what the right to disconnect will provide, there's three main elements to it. It's the right not to perform work outside of agreed working hours. It's the right not to suffer negative consequences for doing that, for setting that boundary. And it's a duty to respect others' right to disconnect. Now, as I said, I think that last piece is kind of interesting because if you're working here in Ireland and it's 12 p.m., you might still want to send an email to your colleague in San Francisco who might not be logged on at work. And are you going to have to be trying to work out who's online and who isn't whenever you send an email? But there are kind of technology solutions to that problem. Sure, you can um, delay sending emails and things, yeah. you know, set it, use your settings and things. Yeah. But I'd say something, I'd say that, that kind of thing will need to be developed. I agree with you. Yeah, so there's suggestions, you know, that in some companies, actually, a more flexible approach might work, but it's actually just perhaps even having a, a prompt to you to say that email is going to reach that person at four o'clock in the morning, their time. And it just might make you kind of think twice about doing it. There's also, of course, the definition of what normal working hours are. And ICTU has said, of course, there needs to be flexibility because people may want to work outside of core hours. And we know that for people who are perhaps trying to manage family life and work, they might want to take a chunk of time out when it's kind of after school, dinner, bedtime, and then they might want to log on after that. And of course, one of the benefits of remote working is potentially that can be facilitated. So, so while you want to define normal working hours, you don't want to keep it so limited as to be inflexible. And, and that's kind of also keeping the equalities perspective on it. So 
workers with a disability, workers who are caring for others may need more flexibility and they may also need to be able to disconnect at a particular time if they're going to have to take on their, their caring responsibilities. It's also going to be really important for staff to, to engage with this and for the communication around it to be kind of positive and clear and that managers are going to need training and supporting uh, in relation to any implementation of a code or indeed a policy. Because, of course, what we anticipate is that once the code of practice comes into force nationally, individual employers are going to want to implement their own policies around the right to disconnect. And it's probably going to be part of that wider remote working policy that we know a lot of our employer clients are already trying to put in place. And there's going to be technical solutions required. And I would imagine that as people start getting to grips with with these requirements initially, that the code um, and any policy an employer puts in place for its own workforce is going to have to be monitored regularly just to make sure it's really appropriate, I suppose, for the workforce that it's operating within. And I I think it's going to be a really positive move. We know that the European Parliament has already passed a resolution calling on the European Commission to propose a law allowing those who work digitally to disconnect outside their their working hours. And there was big support in favour of that in the European Parliament. Um, Now, at the same time, there are those who say the approach that was taken in France initially was quite constraining. You know, so, for example, one company had an approach which meant that it shut down completely its Internet server and mobile connections between 7 p.m. and 7 a.m. every day. And they actually then loosened that approach a few years later so that the staff now receive reminders to say you don't need to answer emails that you've received out of hours. And the, the company feels that, that the lighter system works quite well because it gives more flexibility. But the fact that they had that really strict policy initially where the internet server was down for 12 hours outside of working hours shifted the culture massively and that that was quite a good place to start from. And now they've been able to, to loosen it up a bit. So, I mean, look, it's going to depend a lot on the kind of sector you're in the kind of work that's done whether uh, you know there's lots of sectors where out of hours work is essential but I think it's really interesting that this has now taken centre stage since so many people have been working from home. Yeah I think so Claire that's a really fantastic insight there into that into that concept I think we've we've really come full circle on this in circumstances where we've highlighted all the range of issues that are going to come up uh, and are coming up and, and will need to be addressed going forward in a kind of comprehensive way for an organisation and for, for employees too, addressing all those different types of issues, whether it's health and safety, whether it's data protection, whether it's the right to disconnect, the right to work remotely. There's a huge number of areas and each organisation, as Claire said, is going to be very specific to what kind of hotspots or what points that um, the, the policy might need to adapt or work for you or for your business as to how it will operate effectively for everybody so that there is a consistency. Consistency is always key in ensuring that the organisation works properly. It's also key in sort of mitigating any kind of potential claims that might arise in relation to the application of an inconsistent policy. I also think that we are going to see changes in the, in the law. Um, as we've seen already, there's been like the suggestions of the two codes of practice in relation to the right to disconnect and the right to work remotely. I think Europe's going to have a, uh, another look at all of this at a very deep level. When you think about it, the last piece of legislation is the Organisation of Work and Time Act 1997 
I need new direction, new law to deal with this new, this new world, this new world that we're in. Okay, I hope that everybody has enjoyed our discussion today. We are going to have another discussion on vaccination in the workplace as well. If you're interested in that, please log into that too. It's on another very sort of hot topic that we're all discussing at the moment. Um, in the meanwhile, thank you very much. And thanks to Claire. Thanks to Regan for your contributions. Thank you. You've been listening to the CC Solicitors podcast. For more information or to get in touch, visit ccsolicitors.ie.